Welcome to episode 123 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in three separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp, Swamp Flicks. Yeah. And this is probably our last recording as a group this year. Uh, we'll all come back together early in January for our like best of 2020 lists. Uh, so we're, we have kind of like a blowout today. We're talking about four very different movies um, that are all loosely connected in this like kind of vague way. <laughs> and so I expect this to be kind of a sprawling all over the place conversation. Uh, and I like that sometimes. Yes. It's prepping us for our um, best of the year. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're at our most sprawling and where things have nothing to do with each other. And <laughs> I think raw recording times for those are usually like four hours. And then I try to cut them in half to make them like somewhat manageable. Um, so, yeah, this is a good preparation for that. <laughs> How are y'all doing? How's the uh, movie watching going where y'all are? Um, I'm still doing some 2020 catch up and throwing in a couple of things I've kind of had on the back burner that I've been wanting to watch. I recently watched the movie Underwater. Have y'all seen that yet? I saw that in a movie theater. Believe it or not. I haven't even heard of it. Oh. (laughs) Well, it takes place underwater. What? (laughs) Spoiler. But it stars uh, Kristen Stewart, and it was okay. I think I gave it a three-star review. I thought it was, like, fine. It was good. Like, it was better than I I thought it was going to be. Um, because movies that sort of take place, you know, in this sci-fi underwater realm for the entirety of the movie get kind of boring for me. And I was expecting this one to kind of get boring. And surprisingly, it wasn't. It was one of those like very like claustrophobic movies that just, oh, God, this idea of like being in like a suit on the floor of the ocean in the dark with God knows what around you. Is terrifying, and the movie really puts you in that place. So I appreciated it for that. Yeah. So basically, it's, it's this drilling crew that's in this very intense, like sci-fi-looking um, underwater facility. Um, their facility gets destroyed by some sort of earthquake, and they are on the ocean floor, and they're surrounded by these like mysterious underwater creatures. So it's this very sci-fi film, which is always a good time. I love that kind of stuff. I liked it. It was fun. I probably wouldn't watch it again. I think it's like gets away with being okay just because towards the end it goes really big with what's chasing them. Like <laughs> I know. it delivers the monster movie goods when it has to. Uh, so I walked away feeling pretty good about it too. Yeah, it's good. I don't think it'll make it on my top list, but I'm glad that I watched it. So yeah, that's... yeah. That's one of the more recent 2020 movies that I watched. Another movie I watched, I really think that you would like Brandon. And I am contemplating it, not, you know, putting it up as one of my movie of the month choices for next year. Ooh. Right? So it's a movie called Mumsy, Nanny, Sunny, and Girly. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) It's from 1970. It's directed by Freddie Francis. So he's a director and a cinematographer. He directed a lot of like old horror movies, like the, you know, the old Tales from the Crypt movie and all that good stuff. Some Dracula films. And he was also um, the cinematographer for Glory (laughs) and Sons and Lovers. So um, he's, he's an award winner, this guy. 
this movie is just delicious, incestuous trash. And <laughs> what I love so much is that this is Freddie Francis's favorite film that he's ever made. <laughs> <laughs> so that really makes me appreciate this guy and I have a sudden a sudden interest in reading up on him because he must be a weird guy that I'll probably love. That title has a very strong the baby energy. Like yes. uncomfortable in a very nineteen seventies specific way. Exactly. If I could compare it to anything, it's the baby. Wow. Oh boy. So in this movie, there are four people and they're obviously very wealthy. And they live in like the English countryside in this massive mansion. And they are committed, very committed to playing this role-playing game that's called The Game. And in The Game, everyone has a role and they don't, there's never a time where they kind of break from those roles. And if they do, they lose the game. So in The Game, they play this happy family unit. So there's Mumsy, who's the mom. Nanny, who's the nanny, Sonny, who's the son, and Girly, who is the daughter. And Sonny and Girly are like in their 20s, okay? So um, what they do is they play the game forever. <laughs> it's consumed their lives. And they go out into the city to find friends to bring back to the big mansion to join them in the game. And... What they do to these friends is they send them to the angels. That's what they call it. Um, they kill them in, a, in very bizarre ways on the playground. And Sonny films it with like a 16 millimeter camera. <laughs> and then they watch it as a family. <laughs> <laughs> so they bring a friend home. And it just so happens that this friend is a male sex worker from London. And he was the wrong friend to br bring home because he is totally aware of what they're doing. He, like, is aware that they're crazy and they're probably going to kill him or, as they say, send him to the angels. And he basically tries to turn them on each other while playing the game with them so that he can escape. <laughs> so uh, that's the gist of this movie. <laughs> Sounds pretty insane. It sounds wild. Yeah. It's really good. I had a lot of fun watching it. Um, there is, there's a free version of it on YouTube with some Spanish subtitles. But, and it's really, really blurry. But I want to say that it's on Amazon Prime for like three bucks or something like that. But yeah, I, I really liked it. There's some fantastic film poster art out there for this movie that I'm totally obsessed with that I recommend everyone check out. It was released in the U.S. as the name Girly, but I prefer the Mumsy, Nanny, Sunny, and Girly title. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> so uh, that's some big stuff that I've been watching. So what about you, James? So I have a couple different tracks I've been on movie-wise. First of all, the one thing I wanted to mention is I watched two Aubrey Plaza pictures from this year, one of which will probably make my top 10 movie called black bear which just came out pretty recently which i freaking loved and i'm still still kind of digesting very interesting a lot to think about uh and i do think we'll talk about it more on our year end list because like i said it probably will make my top 10 i've heard people say like even though they're into her already that that 
is their favorite performance of hers so far. Even people were like already over the moon for her. She really goes all out there. Like it's a really amazing performance. And the, the story is so strange and captivating and it's got a lot of tense moments, but it also does that art house. Like, I don't quite know what's going on. I don't know what it all means, but I like it. So there was that, which like I said, I think we'll talk about more in the future, but she also starred in this, um, movie called happiest season, which I really, really enjoyed. It's kind of, um, your standard Christmas family movie where this girl is trying to come out to her parents who are like these kind of conservative type uh, on Christmas time. And there's a lot of shenanigans. And anyway, Aubrey Plaza has a role in that too. And she kind of steals every scene she's in, in that movie as well. So I feel like she's having a really good year. Also has uh, Kirsten Stewart in it, who was in right. Underwater that uh, Brittany ah, mentioned earlier. There's the Underwater connection. We'll see when it pops up again. <laughs> and it's also, I forget his name, um, Eugene Levy's son, who's in Shit's Creek, who I oh, really... Dan, Dan Levy. Levy, yeah. Who I love. He's in there and he's perfect. It's such a sweet, fun little Christmas movie. Like, I highly recommend watching with your family, you know, Christmas Eve. It It's really fun. So yeah, kind of the... Aubrey Plaza kick, but then also the last film that really has stuck with me for a while is, you know, this episode, we're going to talk about films and genres that we don't normally care for. And I just happened to be scrolling through Amazon or whatever, and I saw Bridges of Madison County, which is like, you know, Meryl Streep, Clint Eastwood, this smoldering romance picture from the 90s. Movie. I think of that as a Britney movie almost. Also, like a, yes. <laughs> it's like set in like rural, I think Iowa in the 50s and it's like old people falling in love. And dude, this movie is legit like one of my favorite romance pictures of all time. Wow. I don't know. The way they focus on these little moments, you know, Clint Eastwood reaching over Meryl Streep in the car to get to the glove box or little moments where she like smells his shirt or they like happen to like caress very gently. And it like, she, she's in this like marriage that she's not like unhappily married. Like her husband is a, a good man, but you could tell like from raising a family for 20 years, she's misses that real intimacy. And then Clint Eastwood comes along who plays this like, this photographer who wants to take pictures of bridges and the town she's in. And she kind of shows him along and then she invites him in for dinner and then a drink. And then, Oh, you can spend the night and then, Oh, come with me to my shoot tomorrow. And the tension builds very organically. And like when they finally pull the trigger, I don't know. It really, I thought it was like a beautiful sappy, sort of movie. So I kind of wish that I would have picked that one for this episode because of the movie I did pick, which we'll get into later. I ended up having a very strong opinion about and not in a positive way. Whoa. <laughs> so, Whoa. Thank God. So, a little bit of spoiler. I'm shocked by that. Anyway, Bridges of Madison County. If you haven't seen it, dude, this movie is going to tug at your heartstrings. It's so freaking good. And uh, Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep, 
I don't know. They have that like middle age sex appeal. It just, I don't know. Their chemistry works. Something about romance films that involve middle age people and older that I love so much where if it was played by someone like in their twenties or even somebody my age, I would not like it. Well, what I'll say with this picture, which so great is like, you know, if you're like a younger couple, you might be dating someone and you find this person you fall madly in love with. I feel like you're more prone to in the relationship and go off with this person and start a new life. But what this movie really showed is like when you're in that middle aged, when you have kids and a marriage of 20 something years, you can't really just think about yourself. And that's sort of what the kind of conflict is like. They're passionately in love. They have these four beautiful days together, but at, in the end, is it worth it for her to leave her entire family, friends, husband, children behind for this guy that they had this four day affair. And that's, kind of what the climax of the movie comes to. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. I like these sort of middle-aged love stories, but I was not expecting to like this movie as much as I did. Anyway, so what about you, Brandon? I'm also catching up with end-of-the-year stuff, and I have been for a while, but it's been a while since I've seen stuff that really jumped out at me, and I did get lucky twice this week. Mainly, I want y'all to watch Possessor, if you have not seen it yet. Yep, it's on my queue. I'm probably going to watch it in the next couple days. I'm very excited. I won't mention the plot, because you are going to see it, but it's Brandon Cronenberg's new movie. He hasn't made a film since Antiviral, I think like in the early 2010s, which I've been meaning to watch since it came out and still haven't gotten around to. But I'm a lot more proactive in watching new stuff now. It stars Andrea Riseborough, who was in um, Mandy, as Mandy. Uh, and she was in Nancy and the death of Stalin and a bunch of other stuff. And she is unrecognizable from role to role. And this movie is kind of about that. He built this entire fucked up sci-fi body horror around her identity lessness. And it's got all these like really goopy, disgusting, practical effects. It's kind of like a sci-fi mind fuck in like the best way. But it, it also has this very, like, I think, sellable heist assassin plot to it. Like, it's not, like, so fucking weird. It's not like Mandy or um, Beyond the Black Rainbow where you can't, like, hold on to what it's doing narratively. Like, it, it, it is a thriller. And as soon as you catch on what, to what the conceit is, you could watch this movie with someone who's not on the hook for artsy-fartsy stuff. So it does kind of the best of both things. And, and when it is violent, it's like very upsetting. Hell yeah. I think like you said about Black Bear, that might be a movie we talk about a little more when we do our best of the year stuff. But uh, I, I do want to highlight it. Like Possessor is definitely worth going out of your way to watch. I'm there, buddy. Uh, I also watched one on Netflix called Dick Johnson is Dead, which I've been putting off for a while. Isn't that she like documents her dad's like dying days? but in kind of like a comedic sort of way. I, I saw a trailer for it. It looked really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Kirsten Johnson is a documentarian who mostly does cinematography for other people's documentaries. Like she's traveled all over the world as like a camera person for other people's docs. Um, this is her second feature, I think with her name on it as a director. And it is about her own dad, 
but it's not strictly a documentary. It's like an art project between the two of them. Um, he's going senile and has to sort of retire from his psychiatry business and move in with her, which is tough for the two of them, especially him. Like he has to give up all these freedoms to move in with her. And they know that he's going to die somewhat sometime soon, but instead of just like being this like slice of life, like documentary about this like tough transition, it's them filming the various ways he could die. Like you said, in like a broadly comedic kind of way, like he falls down the stairs or he's walking outside and like an air conditioning unit falls on his head. Um, And they, they film him in heaven with all his favorite things. And it becomes this like collaboration between father and daughter about saying goodbye to someone while they're still alive, but in a way that never feels aggressively morbid. Like it's kind of like lighthearted in an unexpected way. Cause he's like kind of a charming guy and they're having fun collaborating on this art project together instead of just like sitting around and feeling miserable. So yeah, it's a, it's a tough topic, but it's dealt with in this like, I almost want to say like kind of cute way. He's like an adorable man. And the mood is a lot lighter than you would expect given the subject. Well, I think too, like any time a movie tries to deal with like Alzheimer's or the end of life, it can venture too much into the, the weepy overly sentimental sad. stuff. And I kind of like that. It seems she's taken a black humor approach, which I feel like kind of immortalizes him in a different way than, you know, just showing him at the end of life, like kind of this, tragic sad figure like kind of making light of it in a way seems to add some light into his legacy could imagine yeah i I don't know i'm interested to see how it plays out yeah and the thing is like the saddest part of the movie really is that she didn't do this with her mom as well her mom had alzheimer's and died i think like seven or eight years before this project started and she's like this is the only footage i have of my mom and it's not her at her best hmm and it's like maybe like two or three minutes of them talking and it's really like just sad and like empty. Yeah. And you could feel like a sense of loss there. So then the surrounding movie around it is her like making sure that doesn't happen again and like kind of palling around with her dad and like joking and you know, it's a heavy time of their lives, but they're like really connecting and it's, it's very like heartwarming. So yeah, it's, it's not dwelling on, the most painful aspects of that process because they're trying their best to make the most of the time they have together. And they can't really follow through in the conceit of like filming him dying over and over and over again, because he is getting, you know, too fragile to like work long days on movie sets. So they, they can only do it a few times. So it's not like constantly fucked up violence, especially after watching like possessor the day before it was like, Oh, this is like cute ways to die. I find it very charming. It's not quite one of my favorite movies of the year, but I have seen it on a lot of other people's lists. And I know y'all were talking about um, senility as a topic you like to see in movies or like are are interested in. And I think this is an interesting way to tackle that. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard any film that does something like that. So, yeah, I'm interested. And it's on Netflix. Mm, Sweet. Well, like James said earlier, we are going to talk about movies in genres we don't normally like. That's kind of the structure of this episode. Um, Starting with one of the bigger surprises I thought of 2020, like a movie I did not expect to love quite as much as I did. And then we're going to spiral out from there and sort of like dig into 
genres we usually avoid talking about on this show. We're going to start with a superhero movie, and then it's only going to get more and more um, generic from there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. We all know the saying, behind every successful man, there's a badass broad. Well, that was me. I was the brains behind some of Mrs. J's greatest stunts. Not that he let anyone know it. I guess all good things have to come to an end. So, we broke up. So, we don't normally talk about superhero movies on this show. And for our movie of the minute, before the year's like wrapped up, I wanted to return to a superhero movie I saw in the theaters earlier this year that I've loved and did not expect to love quite as much as I did. It's called Birds of Prey. It is a spin-off sequel to the little loved movie Suicide Squad, which I, you know, honestly, when I wrote a review of it, I gave it like a pretty positive spin compared to other people anyway. I thought it was like, okay, as a like hot topic themed shoot 'em up. And the thing that really, really stood out to me was Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn and Will Smith as Deadshot or whatever his character's name was. They had like good chemistry. And I thought the movie like did its best to highlight their rapport and their characters and like minimize everything else that wasn't working. And this movie, Birds of Prey, did that so much better. <laughs> it was the same thing. Like it took the one thing from Suicide Squad that worked, which was Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, which I think is a more popular cultural icon than anything else that came out of that movie or any of these modern DC films. Like I remember like the Halloween of the year that suicide squad came out. Like everyone was like dressed up as the Harley Quinn from that film. It just was explosive. I've seen it as car decals. There's Alexa bliss on WWE, like based her entire character design or modern look off of that character. Like it was kind of a cultural phenomenon and this movie just sweeps aside everything else going on in that like, you know, meltdown of a franchise. They're like barely scooping together into like a coherent shape and like just focuses on her. And for once the sort of loose disconnected storytelling style, all those DCEU movies have actually makes sense because you're in a character's mind who can't think straight. Like you see the world through the eyes of this like nightmare crime clown woman who can barely function as like a human being <laughs> going through the world uh, because her mind is just pure chaos. And the story's chaos because of that. It's got this like choppy Pulp Fiction style where she jumps around on timelines and like sees the world differently than what's actually happening. It's a lot more colorful and cartoonish and Looney Tunes through her mind's eye. And as a result, the movie is a lot of fun. It's like hyper violent. It's very feminine. The costume design and set design is like really colorful, like candy coated clown shit the entire time. And what I most enjoyed about it is just like, I really love watching women misbehave in films especially in mainstream movies, you don't get to see that enough. In this case, you have the superhero genre, which is normally like catered to teenage boys and teenage boys who never grew up. It This time, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like it's marketed specifically for like teen girl sensibilities. 
in this like R rated transgressive way that I don't think girls normally get catered to as an audience. I think we could go into the plot. Maybe it's not that interesting. I don't think it's that important. No, there's like a diamond heist and there's like a building the team sequence. And it really, all that matters is that, you know, this character, this like living bugs, bunny, um, transgressive clown woman who just busts kneecaps and stabs men and like explodes glitter bombs all over Gotham city. She is the movie. And I just found her endlessly entertaining and was surprised to find this, like one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, and we don't normally talk about superhero movies. So I didn't know if y'all would have the same experience. And I was just kind of curious if you'd enjoyed it as well. I think the thing that really turns me off with a lot of superhero movies and Brand, I remember me and you went and saw that that Zack Snyder, Ben Affleck, Batman movie in the theaters, which was one of the most dreary. It took itself so seriously. No sense of humor, no sense of fun. And this is like such the antithesis to that. It's not dark and brooding. It's, it's bright and colorful and irreverent. And it actually has a sense of humor about itself and it's to me it's fun which in an, a lot of these even like the joker or the batman movies the christopher nolan batman it's like they're not necessarily fun to watch in the same way that this is like this felt like watching a real life cartoon come to life and like that's what i would want more of in the superhero genre I mean, just color, if nothing else, like that, that Snyder movie is like so drab to look at. And this is like explosive. Like it's like a makeup palette melted. It really gives off who framed Roger Rabbit vibes, even though like there's no cartoons mixed in with this real world. Although I, there is a uh, animated intro that I was obsessed with. I love animated intros and in movies such as True Beverly Hills. It's a great one. And it just, it gives off that like goofy violence that Roger Rabbit has, but embodied in Harley Quinn. You know what else it reminded me of too? I know Brandon's a fan of the the Batman Forever and those like Joel Schumacher Batman well, movies. I like, like Batman and Robin a lot and I like Batman Returns a lot, the Tim Burton one. I think those are the best two movies from that cycle. Um, mostly because they're like hyper horny cartoons, but forever is the one that's sandwiched between those. So yeah, that's definitely like an era of filmmaking. Well, for is that the one that has, uh, Jim Carrey's the Riddler? Yeah. See, that's sort of what this reminded me of in a way, like basically letting the actors be as cartoonish and over the top as possible and not trying to like rein them in at all. Like I, I, really appreciate that in a superhero movie because so many times it's like if you're the superhero you have to like be poised and you can't be flamboyant and over the top and harley quinn in this picture especially is just like having a blast and i don't know i feel like i enjoy watching actors having a blast as opposed to them just like kind of being downtrodden and you know the Christian Bale, like the Batman super deep voice. And I, I don't know, that doesn't really do anything for me. And to be fair, this has been done before recently with the Deadpool movies. I, I would cite the major difference though, 
they're both doing like that kind of Bugs Bunny, like ain't I a stinker talking to the camera kind of thing. Um, the difference though is that this movie is actually funny. Yeah. And the Deadpool movies like drain say. the humor out of my soul. Like I just feel dead at the end of the film. Well, I do films. feel like Deadpool is more for a male, a younger male audience. It's pitched to Family Guy people. I well, think. there you go. It's like that exact sensibility. I don't feel like the humor here is Family Guy esque, like, but it is transgressive and like upsetting. And you know, she is an amoral person, which I love. Like when someone, when one of her like friends asks her, like, "Why did you betray me to save your own ass?" She goes, "Well, I guess I'm just not that good of a person." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's why we love you." Yeah, I did not think I was going to enjoy this movie as much as I did. Um, and I did see it before we watched it for the for this episode. And I really liked it. Um, and I liked it even more when I watched it again. I, I just liked how it was like so vibrant and so action-packed without being like gross with the um, fight scene. I mean, they're gross, but they're fun in like that wrestling way. And I loved all of the bizarre like weapons and I loved all the characters a lot, especially um, the Cassandra Kane character, the little girl that swallows the diamond. She was just so chill that I like found her to be so funny because of like how like nonchalant she kind of was. And I kind of was curious as to what people thought about this movie because um, I don't remember hearing great things about it when it came out in theaters. So I delved into like the world of Reddit to Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> Scary <laughs> to get place. Some insight. Very strong opinion. Oh my god. They hate this movie and the a big reason was Cassandra King or Cassandra King. They were so pissed off at her character because they were like apparently she is Cassandra King in the uh, comic book world is destined to become like Batgirl and she's supposed to be like this insanely talented martial artist. And they were so pissed off that the character was like a pickpocket and not this like crazy superpower martial artist chick, which who gives a shit? It was fun. And I found it to be even more entertaining because everyone was so pissed off by it. Like the comic book world is so cruel and mean <laughs> yeah I, when it comes to stuff like this where i'm like who cares like read the comic book enjoy that this is something totally different it's a it's a film that should be a, appreciated as a film not as an exact replica of a comic book that would be so yeah. freaking boring which is why then, all the superhero movies are boring yeah i mean that's where my kind of separation from the comic book movies comes from is like i'm not really a fanboy. like i don't care if it sticks to the story that was in the comic books that came out like it doesn't matter to me it's just like is this movie entertaining and this movie was extremely entertaining in a way that a lot of newer comic book movies that take themselves very seriously it was sort of refreshing i don't know it was like a refreshing nihilism not in like the deadpool way but it was nice that it wasn't trying to like provoke any deep thoughts. It's just trying to be an entertaining picture to look at and have a good time. And it succeeded. Yeah. If it's about anything, it's like a breakup story where like she is abandoned before the movie starts by 
the Joker, who's like this abusive lover, and she has to like form her own identity without him. Like, what makes me myself outside of that relationship? You know, she busts kneecaps and rips throats, uh, well, and also like forms a, a community with of women, fellow, yeah. of women, yeah. So, including Rosie Perez, like who would have thought? But yeah, beyond that, like as far as like a faithfulness and adaptation goes, like that's not as important as that like self-reliant breakup redemption arc that's what matters i I don't really care about anything else which is why i think i like this so much is that a lot of those superhero movies try so hard to bring you into this like elaborate plot that like is so freaking hard to follow that you know i i just don't care about and this movie was just like a movie i went in knowing nothing about any of these damn characters and i left satisfied and it's framed through her point of view and i don't think she could focus on a more detailed grounded story like she is kind of scatterbrained so the movie has to be so as well and that helps like justify how hyperkinetic and like all over the place it is and i will say um boomer when i told him we were going to do this episode recommended the harley quinn cartoon show that's on hbo max there's two seasons of it so far and it is both faithful to the characters in the comic books in a way this isn't but also very much mapped to the hyper femme, hyper violent, like hard R humor of this movie at the same time. So hopefully the nerds got what they wanted with that. They probably still hated it just because ew, it's for girls. But that show has been very fun. I've, been, I've run through most of it in the past week um, and I've been very much enjoying it. That sounds like fun. I like animated superhero stuff to an extent. So this sounds like a lot of fun. And you get to spend more time with this character who is a terrible, chaotic, manic person and uh, endlessly entertaining. And I just want to watch her bust men's kneecaps uh, forever. Yes. the kid and you're so ashamed of it you want him dead you want me dead too then maybe you can sleep nights i won't sleep till i see both of you hanged you and the kid and all of your filthy kind look at her standing up there staring down on us like a somebody go get her drag her down i'm not entirely against the idea of watching superhero movies i watch a lot of them I'm not usually that enthusiastic about them though. And we were talking today about like genres we do avoid because we don't talk about superhero stuff on the show. And I actually go out of my way to avoid Westerns. That is like a genre that I'm like, if I hear a movie is good and then I find out it's a Western, I actively avoid it. Yeah. I had one on my watch list for a while though called Johnny guitar, mostly because I love Joan Crawford and this is like cited as one of her best film roles. And I used this conversation that we came up with, like what are the genres we avoid on the show and in our own viewing habits um, to just make myself finally watch this. So this was kind of a blind recommendation for me. Like I think Johnny guitar is going to be great. And I was surprised to find myself loving a Western. Uh, this was a like watershed moment for me. I hope y'all had a similarly positive experience. I did. Yeah. I liked I, it a lot. Great. Joan Crawford still brought a lot of her like psycho bitty vibes to a Western, which 
I thought was fantastic. Yes. I Yeah, the whole psychosexual drama. I remember reading that like this did not play well to audiences when it came out. And now it's kind of regarded as sort of a classic because the undertones are there in this movie. I think they're like there intentionally. Yeah, it's Hayes Code era, like coded writing. It's pretty delicious to use one of our favorite words. Yeah, I agree. So Joan Crawford owns this like saloon that she's built at the outskirts of this town that's in the middle of nowhere in the Old West. Now, this is a 1950s movie, and it is very much a 1950s Western. Like, it has the like cowboys and sheriffs on horseback shooting at each other by the old silver mine over like territory disputes. But most of the drama is in this saloon that Joan Crawford owns. And she has all this, all these men working for her and she sort of lords over them from this like balcony office that she's built herself, even though they're not busy yet because the railroad hasn't been built yet. So they're just like sort of waiting at these like blackjack and roulette tables uh, for customers to show up eventually. And her only customers at the time are these like, mysterious bandit crew uh, that the townspeople suspect are robbing people on the trail and are like criminals, but they claim that they have like a silver mine that they're not sharing the location of because they don't want other people to scoop their, you know, winnings. So the town people are decent folk and they are the enemies. They're these like straight laced Christian assholes who don't like, these like newcomers in their midst who have loose morals and are like building a life for themselves out in the old West, the way that you're kind of supposed to, that's like the dream of the West is that you like, it's like the American dream or whatever. You like build yourself a world from the ground up. And Joan Crawford more or less did this. Uh, it, it is implied, but not stated directly that she basically hoard her way into enough money to build the saloon to eventually turn a much larger profit once the train brings in more more customers and the townspeople want to have her run out or even lynched and killed because her like loose morals are like an offense to them and it's mostly this one woman this one like evil squinch-faced lady who like wants to see her torn down from her like balcony office and like shamed for having the gall to try to create power for herself in this like empty vacuum. Yeah. Did- Emma is like the ultimate villain. If I've ever seen one, she is the worst. Did y'all happen to read the backstory with her though? No. Apparently her and Joan Crawford absolutely despised each other. But for a reason that Joan Crawford used to date Emma's husband back in the day, and they were both going through alcoholism at the time. And there was like a famous story of Joan Crawford throwing her wardrobe out on the highway. And there's all these, all these like on the set squabbles going on. And apparently the direct, the director loved it. He was like, Oh, that's great. Like, and I think it does sort of show in their performance, like there is like real scorn. Yeah. The going hate on. her eyes is real. Apparently yeah, you can't like fake that. You could tell the hate is real. I had no idea, but like that makes a ton of sense as to why like the tension between those two characters is like insane, insane. 
And they are the movie. Like that tension between the two of them is what makes this special. If you remove those two women from this film, this is the most boring ass. I'm going to fall asleep Western, which is not to like say that the director doesn't do other interesting things with it. Like the movie has this very artificial look to it. Um, it's not technicolor, it's true color, but it's got that hyper color saturation from the time and all these like really artificial hand painted backdrops. Well, you could tell they had a limited budget too. Right. Like it looks like it was shot on maybe three sets or sound stages. Like I, I don't get the sense that this was like a big budget affair. And that's why Westerns were very popular for studios. They'd always turn a profit the way that like horror films and other genres do. Uh, but they're also like super cheap to make. You just like go to the California like desert and, you know, rent a couple horses out and then you have a movie. It makes a lot of sense of how like, like what y'all are talking about. Cause I, at Vienna's place, you've got this like raunchy looking bar full of, you know, whiskey barrels and stuff. And then upstairs, it looks like you're in Paris, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. such a huge uh, shift. So yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> But the two women, like their rivalry in the movie really does elevate things. And they're like you were saying earlier, it's very coded, the sexual undertones to what they're saying. But basically, Joan Crawford's like, you don't actually hate me and this guy, the dancing kid who like is the head of the bandits that they want to run out of town. You don't hate us. You're actually like really turned on by us and you want us killed so that you can go to sleep peacefully at night and stop being hot and bothered um, next to your husband uh, thinking about the two of us and our like loose morals. And you know, this woman is like incensed by the implication that she has an erotic imagination at all and like only wants her hanged even more so because of it. Yeah. I, I was reading some stuff online where like some people think that, there's like a lesbian vibe going on that Emma is into the Joan Crawford character. Like, I don't know, maybe I, I did get the sense that she is into the, the dancing kid. That much is clear. That much is clear. Like she makes like very obvious eyes towards the dancing kid, but like there is sort of that vibe there. And there's definitely like a sort of dominatrix thing going on where you know she's wearing leather and at one scene she has a whip and you know she's joan crawford like she's small and like rock hard and she has those like knife eyebrows like she's a very intimidating woman so i I don't know all this stuff is sort of like bubbling under the surface the entire movie and then i love that it's called johnny guitar and he's such like a side piece like he (laughs) like he doesn't really do anything except like kind of save her in the end i guess (laughs) but that's it he does but ultimately like the the big shootout in the end is between the women like that's what the story has been the whole time and the men are just sort of watching and yeah that like power dynamic the men are terrified of these two women it's so funny (laughs) but it's it feels like when you think about in the this time period you had all these john wayne westerns coming out which i think when Brandon says like he hates Westerns, like for me, like there's some modern Westerns that I kind of find appealing, but what I absolutely hate is that era, the like forties and fifties, the John Wayne era Westerns. I, they do absolutely nothing for me. And so this felt like a transgression of that, 
my grandmother, when she was alive, like that was her favorite actor. Like when I would go over to her house, if we were watching TMC, it like always would be watching a John Wayne picture. And it, I even asked her at one point, I would like, I like, I don't get it. Like, what is it with John Wayne? It's from that time, I think. Cause like my papa, like he'll flip between watching Stargate and Bonanza. <laughs> like it's sci-fi and then like hardcore Westerns, like John Wayne stuff. And it's so lame, but like, I think it's just, that was the shit. It's just, he, I guess was seen as like this solid, strong individual that stood up for what was good and, you know. Yeah, there's like a moral center to it and it's very like masculine authoritarianism a lot of the times and like making a world for yourself out in the West like through pure macho self-determination. I find it so boring. And like when we were first thinking about, you know, movies to pick and different topics, my first thought was um, The Dressmaker is like my favorite Western and it's like a modern film. Such a good movie. But Brittany and I already covered for the podcast, you know, but, but in that one, like Kate Winslet is the gunslinger and she moves to this small town. She moves back to her hometown, but it's like a small community. And instead of a pistol, she has a sewing machine and she sews pretty dresses and exacts her revenge through that way. And like, it, it's like a bloody um, revenge plot through her dressmaking. Um, and it's a really fun subversion of the Western tropes because it is like so feminine. And I, I got that same vibe here because the two women are at the center of it. Um, but it, this is like a more genuine product of like, th- this isn't a subversion of the Western. This just is a Western that happens to center on like a female rivalry. The thing about the Western genre is like, okay, I'm a really big fan of like the Coen brothers who obviously are very inspired by Westerns and a lot of their films have like a Western influence when it, where it's like this moral ambiguity, this amoral landscape. Like I find that interesting, you know, in a modern context, I think you can do interesting things with it. But again, when you watch like the heyday of the Western, they just bore the shit out of me. So I I don't think it's a genre that's like without interesting ideas or merit, but it needed to be like transgressed and subverted. And it's like traditional sense. I think it is like, I'm with you, like one of my least favorite genres, but like in this picture, especially like it does something cool with these generic tropes. Well, if you think about it, like what you're saying about the moral ambiguity of the landscape that is something that needs to be fixed. Like the movies are about these like men of honors and these men with these personal codes who bring like law and order back to these like lawless landscapes. And this movie's a little different in that the like morally righteous people are the enemy. And a lot of people have written about this. This is like nothing new as like a thinly veiled metaphor about McCarthyism and they're like using the law to persecute their enemies for things that they never did just to get rid of them and get them out of the way so that, you know, this like body saloon owner who like is transgressing her gender roles is the hero of the story. And, uh, the people trying to bring law and order to her saloon are ruining something that they had no right to trample upon in the first place. Uh, so, so it is a little bit of a subversion in that way. 
and it just looks great. It looks like candy, kind of the same way that like Birds of Prey is like a color saturated like feast. I, I think this has that, and it has the uh, women misbehaving center to it. Well, one last thing I wanted to touch on what the movie that really struck me was the dialogue. It was like sort of cheesy. It was like very overwrought, but in a way that I actually liked. It felt like kind of soap opera or just opera opera. (laughs) The emotions are big, but I dig it. Like, I feel like there was a trend for a while where it's like, you want to write naturalistically, like how people actually talk. It's been a big trend in screenwriting. And this is exactly the opposite. No one talks this way. It's, um, it's old Hollywood. Old Hollywood. Yeah. I, I just like, I really dig the dialogue. There's especially that scene where Joan Crawford and Johnny Guitar kind of are, you know, confessing their love for each other. And he's telling her like, oh, just lie to me, you know? And she's like, oh, what do you want me to say? And, oh, say you've thought about me. Oh, I've thought about you. And it like that sort of playful dialogue, I really, I don't know, it's endearing to me. I really love it. For that, I would recommend every Joan Crawford movie. Like she's like, she is really serving what she normally does on screen here. It's just like the context is so different. Um, and it, it's like wonderful to see her invade this space where she's usually not allowed to play. And she commands the entire film. Like anytime she's not on screen, you're like, where's Joan Crawford? Let's go back to that. Wait. So I just pulled up the, the dialogue, the scene I was talking about. This is so fucking good. It's like, so it starts with Johnny's like, how many men have you forgotten? And then Vienna says, as many women as you've remembered, don't go away. I haven't moved. Tell me something nice. Sure, what do you want to hear? Lie to me. Tell me all these years you've waited. All these years I've waited. Tell me you would have died if I hadn't come back. I would have died if you hadn't come back. Tell me you still love me like I love you. I still love you like you love me. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Like, (laughs) no... No human beings talk like that on this planet, and I love it. Like it's great melodrama. I love the melodrama. This was a good pick. I'd never heard of this movie. I really enjoyed it. So the way we came up with movies to pick for this episode was we all just sort of like spitballed for a minute. Like, what are genres we don't normally like? And I think they all kind of came out like pretty macho. I think the group of movies together. If you look at them, it's like basically like a middle-aged man's taste. It's like the things we don't normally talk about. And I don't remember who said sports movies. I'm going to guess it was Brittany because I don't really care strongly about sports movies like either way. And then James ended up picking the film for that category. And it's surprising to me because it is like very much a straight down the plate like sports movie in capital letters so i'm very curious about how this went okay let me um let me back it up here a second (laughs) so when it was brought up you know and i'm kind of in the same boat where i i don't care for sports movies like it's probably down there with westerns for me like really yeah i i can name you a few but anyway when when it was brought up, you know, that Brittany didn't like sports movies, my brain 
it just like immediately spat out Hoosiers because <laughs> you are so thing. quick. You are immediately like Hoosiers. <laughs> okay. And here, let me, so let me give you some backstory. So like I, I played a lot of basketball, middle school and high school. And like growing up, I watched this movie probably five to eight times. And if you just Google search greatest sports movie of all time, so many lists will say Hoosiers is the number one sports movie of all time. They've had all these color commentators that have come out and said, yep, a lot of good sports movies, but Hoosiers is it. That's like the best. And so like I had that in my brain, like this idea, having not seen the movie in well over probably 15 years, like Hoosiers is the quintessential underdog sports movie of all time and so i just put it out there and that was the pick and so i rewatched it again last week and i feel like my entire childhood was shattered oh no come on i don't want to be like too critical on this movie but this is a bad movie it's objectively a bad movie and it's so weird to have picked a movie to be like, oh, you don't like sports movies. Well, come on, check out this one. It's the greatest of all time. And then you actually sit down and watch it and it's not very good. I'm in a strange position here. Come on. Like, I'm not going to defend Hoosiers as like something spectacular, but you know, these other genres, like when I hear like, oh, I'm going to watch a Western, I'm like, fuck God, like it, it's painful. When I hear I'm going to watch a sports movie, like about an underdog sports team, it's fine. Like, it's okay. It's never going to be great. It's never going to be like aggressively bad. It's like a three-star coasting down the middle of the road. Okay. Formulaic, mild pleasure, I guess. It's a way to pass the time. And this movie, maybe it's not the greatest sports movie ever made. I would say that's bring it on personally. But in this context... It is the most sports movie. This just follows the beats so faithfully to what an underdog sports movie is. So maybe you would be a lot more like aggressively negative about it if you hated that formula. But for me, I was just like, oh, look, they're doing it. Go team. (laughs) And it was over. When I think that's why it's considered the greatest is because the formula we've seen in Remember the Titans or Rudy, who this same director directed that, or like any of those underdog stories, this is the formula. And like this movie is it to a T like just watch this movie and you understand the underdog story and how to tell it. I think that aside watching it again, I got wrapped up in sort of like all the other stuff that goes into making a good movie, not just the core like formula and the the formula works, but I have so many problems with this as a movie. Like, I don't, do we even need to like really talk about the plot? I mean, give me a two sentence synopsis, you know, a coach with a dark past who is restarting his life in this small Indiana town. And he becomes the high school basketball coach for this kind of ragtag group of kids. And he whips him into shape and they go on to the state finals and you know win the whole thing 
in the end is yep <laughs> the general gist of it we've seen we've seen it a million times okay but i have a few things i noticed rewatching it is like first of all the gene hackman character i think his performance is good i think his character as coach dale is completely unlikable i don't think he like shows any real humanity beyond you know Anyone that's been into sports had that coach growing up that was a hard ass, but, oh, he made me a better player. Like, that's what Coach Dale is in this picture. He shows no real depth as a carry. He's sort of an authoritarian dictator to the team that brings him into victory. The only time he really shows any depth, I think, is when he's, like, not even assisting, but attempting to assist, like, Dennis Hooper's character into getting out of alcoholism. <laughs> Dennis Hopper playing like the most Hopper shit. Yeah, well, he's playing like the most cliche version of like an alcoholic hobo you've ever seen in a movie. Like he's even got a little beat up top hat. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's like, pretty I, great. Like they I scooped think... him up on the streets of London and threw him <laughs> in Indiana. He threw his glass bottle of uh, al- alcohol at the wall and then rubbed his eyes together when he saw this big city guy come in. <laughs> I actually, I, I like Dennis Hopper in this movie. I like them both. But the other big sticking point is that there's this romance subplot in here Oof. that feels so, so completely unwarranted. And like, where does it come from? I don't feel any romantic energy between Gene Hackman and Barbara Hershey, who plays his teacher, you know, that she gives him a hard time at first, but she kind of, her heart's melt and they have the scene where they kiss and it like, I haven't felt that icky in a kiss scene in a long time. I'm like, where is this coming from? It's like, like watching like relatives kiss or something. Like it felt sh- just icky. Right. It's like where there's no heat in this, like no attraction. It's It felt like they removed three or four like pivotal scenes. But I will gonna- say I appreciate Barbara Hershey in this movie and any any opportunity to have Barbara Hershey in a film. I welcome it. Yeah, no, I welcome her great. in Hoosiers. Even if she has to make out with her dad. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, that's what it felt like. But here, here's my main thing. The main thing that bothered me was when I was growing up watching it, when I was so into basketball, I loved it because to me it was getting at what it really felt like to love the game of basketball and to love being on a team and winning as a team. Watching it again, though, the actual story is like (laughs) this team that sucks right they suck they want this guy jimmy jimmy's the best basketball player but we're gonna work as a team we don't need jimmy like jimmy doesn't want to play with us and we're gonna work as a team and they suck they lose they lose and then jimmy decides like oh i want to join the team and then they start winning and that seems to be so antithetical to the message of the film in that some of the parts is greater than one player. And then in the final sequence, Jimmy refuses to take the coach's call. And it's like, no, pass the ball to me and I'm going to take the I'm winning gonna shot. I'm going to make it. Yeah. And that's how they win the championship. When they already had like the best version of that climax earlier in the film when like the team towel boy, who's like short and is basically like the Rudy character. I like that part. He wins like a game by making a free throw 
as like a granny shot, like, uh, you know, that sort of like from your legs up shot and wins a game because of that. And it's like, that should have been your climax. Like that's your team player victory. Right. You like use that 20 minutes ago in a different game for some reason. Yes. What? I totally get that. Cause like, I'm like, Oh, this is it. And then the movie kept going after that. And I was so confused. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, they have another game. <laughs> when they talk so much about like Gene Hackman's philosophies, you have to pass four times before you take a shot, you know, to try to spread the ball around and create team movement, whatever. And then in the end, it's just like, oh, the star player came back on and he's awesome. Just give him the ball. He'll make it. We'll win. Like that undercut everything I thought the movie was trying to say about being a successful team. I mean, I agree with your, with what you're saying. Like philosophically, I don't think I engaged with the movie that specifically. Like I didn't really think about the logistics of the plot. It is like a oversight, but I don't think the movie asks you to think too much. Like it, it really just is hitting like the underdog story beats. Like the, the sticking point I more had was like, this is a small town of like white people who like the big victory at the end is like over these inner city black kids. Yes. <laughs> that's the other, that's the other thing that has not aged well is like, yeah, we don't see a single black person, the entire film and then the big bad, you know, villains in the end, the people and the state team that they have to overcome are predominantly like a black team. And so it's pitted these like white milk toast, small town guys who I guess we have to root for over the inner city black players when that is actually the more interesting story, especially in the fifties right. to be in an inner city team to have to like work with like white players and deal with racism. That is the much more interesting story. And the fact that in the end they're kind of the opponent, I don't know if I was a black person watching Hoosiers, I don't know. I might have a problem with that. Yeah. You fucking hate that movie. (laughs) So it was just little stuff like that. Maybe I'm being a little too harsh on it. I do want to mention a couple other anachronisms for the fifties. Like, the music is very 80s synth heavy. My God, Brandon, I am so glad you brought that up. <laughs> I loved it. It's like, it does not fit at all. It's like, it's like a Terminator sequel, but it's this 1950s basketball movie. It reminds me so much of like the beat that plays the beginning of Big Business when they go into the city and it's like, and um, <laughs> it, it plays whenever they're having the intense slow motion, like basketball uh, tournament moments. And it's like, where the hell is this coming Wait. from? It's so funny. I love it. Another thing too is like, okay, in most sports movies, when the team is down or they're battling a tough opponent, the music tends to be very tense and like, ooh, we don't know if they're going to triumph. But in this movie, it's like the triumphant music plays the entire time. So it's like a foregone conclusion that they're going to win. It sounds like the background music from like a Sears commercial from 1984. <laughs> like it's crazy. It's so it's the weirdest thing about this movie. I think it, it was just so strange. It made me like dissociate. Like I stopped thinking about, you know, the actual narrative of the basketball games themselves. And it was just like, I was listening to this like synth score specifically. 
and then the basketball imagery was like a screensaver almost. Uh, it, it reminded me of um, that movie Lady Hawk, where there's just like the Tangerine Dream score of just like constant synth music while like you watch a horse gallop for like two minutes on end. And I actually like enjoyed that experience. I found that very pleasant. Yeah, that's probably the strangest thing in the movie. And yeah, like one of the coolest things about uh, Hoosiers. <laughs> I'd also cite Gene Hackman's performance as like this Bobby Knight type. Totally. like big city asshole is like so 1980s and his charisma is like what carries the film and like makes it interesting. I guess it's like kind of prickly personality he has, but like him and the synth score feel like these like 1980s anachronisms, like imposing themselves in this small town, 1950s story. But the thing with the thing with Hackman's performance is like, once you find out that, you know, the reason he was kind of excommunicated from the basketball community was he physically assaulted a student. What an asshole. <laughs> what an asshole. And you don't see any, what real growth do you see from him as a character? Like him, maybe realizing like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be so tough on these kids and maybe I can find a different way to coach. There's none of that. It's just like, oh, I beat this student up. I got fired. I go to the small town and I just bring my same coaching philosophy and we win. Like his character had no arc. It just, he was who he was. This movie is so much of like one of those like movies that the, not really, I guess maybe the boomer generation where they're like, you know, you have to work for everything you have. Yes. It is so a conservative. It's like belief in God family community respect honor respect authority honor hard work boring (laughs) (laughs) lame i know um but you know i am glad that we watched it though i will say that because it is like it is everything that a the sports movie when i was like god i hate sports movies this is what that well this is what i was thinking of i'm upset I like. I feel like I could have picked a better one for you, Brittany. No, because well, here's the thing. I kind of sat down. I was like, "Are there any sports movies I like?" And they're all like Disney movies. It's Little Giants, A Kid in King Arthur's Court, and The Big Green. But they're all for children. So I don't think I like any adult sports movies other than like you know, like Brandon mentioned, like Bring It On. But I think like these basketball, football, blah 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 movies. I- or like Raging Bull. Would you consider that a sports movie? Sure. I mean, it's like, I guess, but it's more about the man, not the sport. Yeah, that's like I feel a drama like- that's like set in a sports world, kind of like The Wrestler. Um, yeah. when, I, when I say bring it on, I'm like serious. Like it, it follows the tropes and structure of like an underdog sports right. team. It's like the comp- it's a competition. Yeah. They just happen to be a cheerleading squad instead of the football team, which is like not something you see. So I don't know. I guess to, to wrap it up with Hoosiers, it's still... It has a soft spot in my heart just from watching it so much as a kid, watching it as an adult. I don't think it got at like the core values of teamwork. And I guess the last thing I'll say is like 50s basketball was boring as fuck. Like that's the main thing. Like I actually watched some games, some like college games from the 50s after this and like, oh my God, they're not moving. They're just standing there. So much passing, very little shooting, very little athleticism. And like the game is so much more physical and energetic now. So I don't know. It, 
kind of came across that way in the, the actual basketball scenes too. Like, oh, this is a boring version of the sport. So, Bernie, this like more or less just confirmed everything you already knew right. you didn't like about the, <laughs> the genre. Yeah, it was. It's so funny because like this is it. Like when I was thinking about why I don't like sports movies, I'm like, God, this is what they're like. Well, I'm glad I could wrap it up in a perfect. <laughs> this is it. The greatest sports movie of all time. This movie has a genuine locker room slow clap sequence where the team <laughs> claps slowly and then like the the applause like gathers steam like that that is classic sports movie trope i will say i think Brittany, your selection was a war film and i think you went more of the subversive route like what is the least war movie war movie you could possibly pick you think this is it i think it's pretty strongly up there it it does follow the tropes of war films enough to to fit in the category but like the sentiment and the tone of it is not your usual like this isn't saving private ryan you know but it is still violent as fuck yeah it is and i actually thought that james would dislike this and i have a couple reasons why so i kind of want to get into that it's almost like y'all are actively trolling each other with these selections (laughs) (laughs) so what'd you pick Brittany? so Whenever going through all the genres, I'm like, yeah, sports movies suck. Westerns suck. And yeah, war movies. Like, who wants to watch a war movie? I like war movies. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They bore me. (laughs) Yeah. So here's my issues with why I don't like war movies. They're usually, like, very macho. They sometimes glamorize war in that macho way that I just find to be very disgusting. And they're boring as shit. So that's why I usually stray away from them. And whenever I was in college, as a history major, I took like a crap ton of history classes. And one of my classes were focused on World War One, And I like became fascinated with it because World War One is just like this freaking hot, horrific mess that is like a true story. And... My professor recommended, like, oh, you should watch a very long engagement. It's also a very long movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's two, you know, it's like two hours long. So um, I watched it and, like, loved it because this movie, which is a very long engagement, 2004, it embodies, like, like you were saying earlier, Brandon, it's a war movie. It shows, like, the atrocities of war, the impacts that war has on individuals, and just how, like, horrible it is, and, you know, how barbaric it is. But it also has, like, this really uh, touching story in the background of it, and it's also, like, a mystery. So, yeah, that's why I chose it, because, like, when I'm thinking of, like, war movies I enjoyed, it's 100% this one. It's also the like most auteurist film on this list of movies we have. Like, this is a Jean Pierre Genet movie, and it very much is one of his films that just happens to be a war movie as well. So, like, his personality is all over this movie. Right. It's the quirkiness like that you see in Amelie, but it's in a war movie. Exactly. I mean, I didn't actually know it was directed by him, but you know, the movie starts out with some really horrific violence. You have a, like an arm hanging off of a cross and just horse parts, horse parts and mud. And yeah, I was like, oh, God, this is like grisly, like which honestly is sort of what you go into a war movie to see is that sort of thing. Like, but then it started to do this like whimsical 
thing and with the shots and everything i'm like man this like is this by the guy that did amelie like <laughs> it's like oh yeah sure enough and then when that um actress what's her name uh audrey tattoo yeah when she showed up then it was clear but i could tell like within 10 minutes that it was the same director just from that style like heavily stylized whimsical thing it's pretty much half like amelie goes to 1917 and like half Amelie goes to Downton Abbey, but it's none of the rich parts of Downton Abbey. It's like the parts where the uh, the maid tries to get her husband out of jail for like three seasons. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yes. <laughs> so this film is mainly through the eyes of Mathilde, which is Audrey Tato's character, right? And she has polio, which is like horrific. It's just very sad. So she's um, this polio-ridden individual. You know, she's in a wheelchair, has a limp, and she is, like, madly in love in the French way, right, with this young guy. And he goes off to war, like many young men did in World War One, and he doesn't return, and it's assumed that he is dead. So she starts doing all this research to figure out what's going on with him because she senses that he's still alive. And she does all of these bizarre bets with herself, which I do all the time, where she's like, if I finish peeling this apple and I don't break the skin, he's still alive. Or if I run to the bend where this car is passing and I meet up with the car, he'll still be alive. Like she does things like that throughout the whole movie, which I found very relatable. So she's kind of getting all sorts of pieces to this puzzle together. Like she's, you know, getting all these little bits and pieces of, you know, what's going on with, you know, her fiance, whether he's alive or not and trying to figure out what's going on with him. So I thought like, that was pretty interesting. Like for a, such a long movie, like, you know, a, a movie that's over two hours long, that is about war. It's so engaging. And like, you just can't stop watching it. Like I really did not find any part of this movie to be boring whatsoever because there's so many little stories going on in the background. Like there's so many characters. You just like, can't keep up with it. They each get their own little like vignette with like their own little twee quirks uh, where like this guy collects this or he's in love with this other woman. And um, I don't know. She plays the tuba because it sounds like a distress call. Like everyone gets these little Janae like touches. I love um, the bartender with the wooden hand that um, is from like a hyena incident <laughs> and he cracks nuts with it. That's a good specific example. Yeah. God, he's one of my favorites. I love that. That whole bit. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's it's so great. So yeah, so the film is filmed in this really old world style sepia tone, um, except for the parts where we get flashes to when her fiance is like in the trenches. And once you go to those scenes, it's very grim. It's very gray. And I like that the film sort of does that because it really shows like how disgusting these trenches were. I mean, it was just cold filthy full of disease it it was just hell and it's so fucking sad you know and i like that the film did that because like i was saying before like there are some war movies and which is probably why i don't like war movies a lot is that they're like this you know macho war hero like 
glamorizing, you know, fighting in the war and, you know, basically like having all these poor young men murdered so that these, you know, rich assholes and government officials can like maintain their lifestyle. It's just insane. Um, And I like how the movie didn't shy away from that, but it also kept it on the not so serious side because of all the whimsy. (laughs) Yeah. There's like fart jokes and donkey turds and sex and yeah, it's, it's very body. But yeah, but there are these fantastic scenes that are insanely violent. Like the, the grenade explosions, you know, the plane shootouts, the scene where everyone, you know, gets their bayonets on and they start charging towards the enemy and they just fucking start getting blown up and there's just gore splattered on everybody. It's done in this like not disgusting way that I appreciated. And yeah, there's lots of, like I was saying earlier, there's lots of fun crap thrown in here. Um, little surprises such as Miss Jodie Foster (laughs) popping up in a farmer's market. (laughs) The last person you would expect to see in a very French, very Genet movie is Jodie Foster. And she's in here and she's fabulous, right? I also love, love, love the French countryside. Like, I think if I could pick any point in time in the past that I, if I had to go, I would not really want to go to the past. But if I had to, it would be like early 1900s French countryside, like Mathilde's life minus the polio um, leg situation is what I would like. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, what did y'all think of this movie um, as a war movie, especially? I really loved this because it is so perverse and such a weird impulse to make a quirky twee war epic. Like, who is this for except for Jean-Pierre Genet? I just love his bullshit. Like, I was raised on his movies. Like, when I first started caring about films as a teenager, you know, more than just, like, being entertained by them, but, like, you know, falling in love with different directors and, like, stylistically over-the-top films. Like, he was one of the bigger names because Amelie came out around that time and, you know, Delicatessen and City of Lost Children and all those films that made him famous. So to see that applied to like a war epic is just so bizarre, but I can't help but be romanced by his particular brand of twee bullshit. The reason I thought this was a funny pick on a, and a troll for James in particular is because when we were spitballing um, genres, one of the things he said was like costume dramas is something he does not care about. And I also know just in general from being your friend that you are not into twee as an aesthetic. Well, personally, I think it, it gets a bad rep because it is very quirky on the surface, but it's also always like super melancholy. There's always like this like undertone of like deep suicidal sadness to all tweet art and also very horny. And I always appreciate those things. So I, I have no idea what you thought of this movie, but I thought it was a really funny pick for you in particular. So I guess what I'm wrestling with is like, what is the point of a, of a war movie in general? Like I always had the mindset that a war movie is supposed to be hard to watch. It's supposed to like confront you with, Hey, this is what people did to overseas going into trench warfare, whatever the bomb, like awful shit happens in the name of like peace or whatever. And we need to see what it actually looks like up front and, 
you know, personal and how grisly it is. And so with a movie like this, it confuses me because on the one hand, it shows the violence in a really like real way, but then also like tonally, it's just like Brandon said, this twee bullshit of like, <laughs> oh, like, uh, but don't you find it makes it one. easier? Like you still get the intensity that, you know, he's trying to convey with war being serious. And like, you know, especially like you have people mutilating themselves just so they can like get out of it for a hot second and they end up being murdered by their, you know, own crews. It's more easier to easier to watch because you have the twee, but you still get that impact of how horrific it is. But I think with me, it's like, it shouldn't, be made easier to watch. Like it should be hard to watch because this is what's happening. And I don't know, just like if you were to make a twee film about a variety of subjects that someone takes very seriously, it it feels like kind of a slap in the face. I think all twee movies are very serious. And if you really like look at the genre, that surface level aesthetic where everything is neatly put into place and like very dollhouse curated um, and meticulous, that surface is always covering up this like deep well of like hurt and like animalistic hedonism. And if you look at all tweet art, that's like constant across the board. They're all dark. They're all horny. They're all like suicidally depressed and they look cute on the surface. And I think that tension is constant. And I think it, that fits here in a way, but not, not in the way that you're looking at it. You're being very prescriptive about how war movies have to do a certain thing in this film. War is like a natural disaster that happens to people and the people who are enduring it or have had their lives disrupted by it are still very human and have these like little like humanistic quirks about them and the movie humanizes each person by making them more than just a soldier. It like gives them these like backstories and these like individual little like quirks that like make them people. And then it's like, well, how fucking horrific is it that they couldn't just live their lives that way? This like awful trench warfare that like really mutated the landscape and made this beautiful world ugly like that, that is a tragedy. And I think the movie takes that seriously, even if the individual quirks and the romance aren't quite as morbid, but the individual stories kind of get lost in the shuffle for me. When I was watching this, the visual style is so arresting that like Brittany was saying, you kind of lose track of the individual story. So to me, it's not about he's trying to tell these individual stories. It's like, Hey, look at this, movie it's so cool to look at and it's so cute and quirky but i didn't get any real sense of these characters and what their struggle was and their loss like even in the end which should have been this big climactic moment where she you know sees her lover again and he has amnesia and it's like i should have had tears for me and i didn't feel anything i just felt like oh that's a good looking shot I actually found the ending to be like a little more on the sad side because she was so accepting of it. I think like she was just 
so happy that she didn't care and it kind of made me I'm like oh it felt more I got there's more more emotion that came out of me than if she would have like cried or made this huge I I like how the ending like abruptly ended at that and and what I loved was that we were watching a war movie where at the climax she was narrating makeup tips on how not to smear your makeup when you know you're going to cry. Um, and I was like, that's a great um, <laughs> subversion of how these movies usually climax. Uh, I found that to be kind of fun. But I mean, okay, let's say, let's say for like Katrina, if someone decides to create a twee musical about Katrina and black people drowning in their homes and we make it kind of fun and a little wink, wink, Sort of thing, and I think that's like been done before, and it did piss people off. It's called Beast of the Southern Wild, and I liked that movie. <laughs> but that had like a depth to it that I don't think traditional, like when I think of Twee, doesn't have like a lot of people, especially people not from here, have lobbed the same complaints against that movie as what you were just describing. And I I think it takes the you know trauma of that event seriously, even though it's like portraying it through this like fantasy scenario. And I think this movie does a similar thing. Like the trench warfare stuff is fucking gross and it's like upsetting, even though there is like cute manicured whimsy on top of it. I, I think that's an, an intentional contrast and it, it's not going to work for everybody. But I, I, I was like, I, I both enjoyed it and knew the whole time. Like James is going to fucking hate this. <laughs> I, but, but see, that's the thing. Like I didn't, I didn't hate it. I actually, I thought like visually it's great. Like the guy knows how to shoot a movie. Some of the shots, they're beautiful. The way he uses CGI. Yeah. Like I think one of the greatest shots in cinematic history is whenever Mathilde goes to that, you know, grave site and there's just all these like crosses lined up and like the camera is phenomenal. And and the score by Angelo uh, Baldamante who did, the score for Twin Peaks, like the music's good. Visually, it's fantastic. Of course, I actually thought the like stuff in the trenches was like appropriately horrific and really showed the violence of the situation. But ultimately, like it did feel like a very long engagement. Like even though it was only two hours and what, 10 minutes, it felt like a three hour film. Oh, yeah when it should have like went by quicker uh, to me, when I think of like that twee aesthetic, it should be poppy and like move quick. And this one actually dragged in a weird way for me. And I think, I think there's so many stories and so many characters. Yeah. And I couldn't keep track of it, uh, you know? So I, I, that stuff aside, and then maybe I do have some philosophical problems with twee in general, but ultimately, I, I did not hate this film. I don't want to make it seem... That was a strong word like to I use. D- yeah, I was just like, I, I would not have picked this for you to watch specifically, which is kind of the point of the whole exercise, right. you know? No, it, it did feel like a little outside of my, my comfort zone. But I still found things about it to be very admirable. I don't know who you would market this to unless it was to, like, someone who was, like, a teenager or a 20-something in the 2000s, like... This is a very specific aesthetic that's applied to a genre that's not normally going to accommodate that. Like a twee war epic 
is a strange combination of ideas and influences. And I just happen to be in that sweet spot where I can't help but be a sucker for it. I, I really enjoyed this. Okay, so we've talked in general about all these genres. Like, are there any films in the war genre that that y'all appreciate? Or it's kind of like the Western thing where it's just like a no-go. I have seen three recent war films in the theater that I enjoyed off the top of 1917. my head. 1917. Like, I saw that. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't great. But, you know, the style of it was actually not very dissimilar to this film. The, like, over-the-top camera work is pretty similar to a very long engagement. Um, I also saw Dunkirk in the theater, I, similar vibe, like the the filmmaking style and like the way Nolan structured time in that movie was at least interesting enough to carry me through it as like a visual experience. And I also liked that movie Overlord, which was basically a war film that just happened to have zombie mutants in it. Yeah, they're okay. I guess it's maybe not be a war film, but um, Schindler's List, would you consider that a war movie? I think it doesn't really go too much into like, to me, I think I hate to bring it up, but like, I think saving private Ryan in a way is the quintessential war film in that kind of in the same way as Hoosiers tries to be with basketball. Like the main action of the film is the war itself or the basketball game itself. So like more than half of that film is just like battle scenes where he tries to recreate how these actual battles happened or whatever. Ugh. And like, I know <laughs> history and war buffs get off on that sort of stuff. I think casual viewers that don't really give a shit, like it doesn't like connect. I think that's the difference for me. just in general with these like movies, I would avoid because of their genre. I need some kind of hook. Like, you know, Dunkirk in 1917 and Overlord all have some sort of like subversion where it's not just historical reenactments. There's also this like stylistic diversion they threw on top of it, or, you know, zombies are in the mix. That's enough of a hook to be like, okay, I don't normally watch war movies, but I'll go see this like experiment in genre. You know, it's kind of the same with Birds of Prey and Johnny Guitar. Like those aren't genres where I normally get to watch women misbehave and transgress in a like fun, colorful, fun time at the movies. Like that's not usual. So that's like a hook that will grab me. The only movie that we talked about today that's kind of missing that is Hoosiers. And then when watching it, the things that were like jumping out to me were the eighties anachronisms like Gene Hackman and that synth score. Like that's different than what you would normally see in like a fifties basketball film. So I guess I'm like looking for some kind of like, not subversion, but like some kind of hook to like grab my attention. Cause otherwise it's just like they bleed into each other. Yeah. It just falls into the background with the rest. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think something like saving private Ryan, it prides itself on being as gritty and not stylistic in a way. It's like kind of like torture porn in a way. Like we're going to show you exactly what it looks like to be on the battlefield and guys with, their intestines falling open and like all the horrors of war, like you're going to see it and it's not going to be stylized. And that's like the appeal of those films to, again, to like history buffs and to people that aren't into twee. I guess I could see the other direction, like genres I will watch no matter what, like, you know, 
I'm a horror nerd. <laughs> like any like vampire film that's like a straightforward genre exercise. I could see how other people would be bored without some kind of like hook to grab their attention to. You know, what's interesting is I think all the genres we picked, um, mine is superhero, but like sports and war and, um, Westerns. Shit, Westerns. I think those are all like Clint Eastwood's favorite genres. <laughs> like, I think we really made a, a Clint Eastwood episode, even though we didn't talk about him in a film. <laughs> Except for Bridges of Madison County, which, uh, where to God, is a beautiful film. I'm going to make y'all watch it. Okay. Well, I kind of was getting like to how when you were talking about the. Hoosiers romance. I'm like, this sounds like you're talking about Bridges of Madison County again. Oh no, it's so much. You can feel it. Oh no, you can feel it in your bones. It's real. It's like we needed to get Meryl Streep and Hoosiers stat. That that Gene Hackman, Barbara Hershey thing. I don't know what the hell that was. It's like if you saw one of your teachers kissing your other teacher. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's exactly what happened. So they did pull that off. I don't know if that's what they intended to do, but it worked. <laughs> but I, I will say out of all the movies we watched, I hate that I picked the one that I liked the least. <laughs> so, I'm willing to admit that. I liked all of our picks um, in some way, in some way, even Hoosiers. Yeah, I thought Hoosiers was fine. It's okay. So next week on the show, Cece and I will be recapping everything we saw at the New Orleans Film Festival this year. I think Brittany's going to join us for that episode to talk about Valerie Sassafras in particular. Uh, She had a documentary about her at the festival. And then the week after that, we're going to do a crossover episode with the We Love to Watch podcast. Um, The two hosts of that show are going to record an episode with me about Christmas horror. And that's going to be one of our closers for the year. So all three of us will be coming back together in early January to talk about our favorite movies of 2020. Do y'all have like a particular movie y'all want to like shout out? Like you have to watch this before we have that conversation. I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot. Black bear. I would recommend the wolf house, the painter and the thief. So we will likely be talking about all those movies um, in depth along with too many others from this year. If anybody tells you there are no good movies this year uh, because of the pandemic, that's definitely a lie. Um, There's plenty of stuff we we have to talk about in that episode. Oh, yeah. And uh, we'll see you all then. Bye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.